Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code Tara sagt Clark. The Global Story with smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out more. Hello, I'm Audrey Brown and our conversations today in Focus in Africa include one on how Libyans have been responding to the traumatic divisions in their country. There's a lot of solidarity in moments of difficulty where people say we are Libyans, we are one country. But Libya is still recovering from a legacy of 42 years of Gaddafi rule. So the concept that they are now divided is also adding to the list of things that they are still grappling with. A former official involved in Nigeria's wildlife management calls out government neglect of animals and the people that look after them in zoos and parks. All zoos, especially the zoo operated by government in Nigeria, are like torture Can you imagine the only wildlife park which also had a zoo component in the entire southeast was destroyed without anybody challenging the governor? So how do you expect such government to put policies in place to make animals live under a protected environment? We've also been discussing why Algeria, a largely secular state, has built the third largest mosque in the world. It's Wednesday, the 28th of February. First, we go to Libya. In 2011, the world watched as Libyans toppled Muammar Gaddafi. They did it with the help of airstrikes sanctioned by countries like the United States and the United Kingdom. The end result was Colonel Gaddafi dead and a country split between a UN-sanctioned government in the West and a, shall we say, rebel government in the East. The country is awash with militia only nominally affiliated with the estated authorities, so division and violence is the order of the day. Hisham Yeza is the North Africa expert at BBC Monitoring, and he now looks back at how Libya got to this point. Let's listen. Libya is Africa's fourth largest country and boasts more than 40% of the continent's oil reserves. It also occupies a strategic location between Europe, Africa and the Middle East. Yet for the past decade, it has been beset by political division, insecurity and instability. The 42-year authoritarian rule of Muammar Gaddafi came to a brutal end in October 2011 when he was killed by NATO-backed rebel forces. The decade since has been marked by instability and division, mainly between leaders in the east and west of the country, which often spilled into open armed conflict and civil war. This has seen several countries become politically and militarily involved in this power struggle, including Russia, Turkey, Egypt, the UAE, France and others. 
there was some optimism at the end of 2015 after the formation of a unity government known as the GNA, but it struggled to assert its control over the country, especially in the east, where the powerful commander Khalifa Haftar and his Libyan National Army challenged its authority. In 2021, a government of national unity was given the task of organising elections by the end of the year. However, these did not take place and the country became once again split between two rival governments. A key obstacle to stability has been the rise of armed militias, which employ local as well as foreign fighters from countries such as Sudan, Chad and Syria. Disarming and disbanding these militias has been difficult. However, on the 21st of February, the Tripoli government announced a deal for armed groups to leave the capital. The news raised hopes that the rule of militias was coming to an end, but many remain sceptical. Whether this is a major step towards lasting stability or just another fall storm, only time will tell. That's Yisham Yeza. So now the interior minister in the UN-recognized government based in Tripoli has announced a deal with armed groups supposedly under its control in the capital. I've been talking to Amira Fatala, the Libya expert at BBC Monitoring, for a bit more detail. Let's talk about these armed groups that have been controlling the capital for more than a decade. I mean, it seems like that's all we hear about Libya and how they're stymieing the political process. This deal that's on the table now, how did it come about? This deal was unilaterally announced by the interior minister of Libya's Tripoli-based government. That's the government of national unity. Um, He delivered a press conference in which he announced what he said was good news for Libyans that all armed groups would withdraw from the capital. The only ones that would remain, just a handful of state-affiliated forces like the police and the Tripoli Security Directorate. He was a bit vague on the time frame. He tied it to the Muslim fasting months of Ramadan, which is going to run from around 10th of March to about the 10th or 12th of April. And he said probably this would happen after Ramadan. So we're talking April, May, perhaps. Now, just with my untrained eye, I can already see why that's a problem. Unilaterally announced, all other forces except the ones associated with the Tripoli government stays in the capital. Has there been a response from those that are supposed to withdraw? The minister's announcement said that this was an agreement with all the armed groups. The difficult thing here is that many of these armed groups are actually supposed to be affiliated to this government. You have groups, uh, one's called the Rada forces, um, special deterrence forces, for example. Um, These are groups which nominally answer to the interior ministry but have been notoriously difficult to control and really act of their own accord. So the assumption here is that they're all on board. But I think one very important point is they will be, according to the announcement, withdrawing to their barracks. They're not going to be disbanded. And they're not leaving the city. They're not really leaving the city. They will withdraw from the streets. How do they affect civilian lives? It's very difficult for civilian lives because ultimately... These groups, despite their nominal affiliation to the government, they have ultimate control. They are the reason why there are weapons on the streets. And this hampers the day-to-day life of civilians, whether because they need to play by the rules of these militias or when the groups clash with each other in this fight for power and influence on the ground in the capital, it's always the civilians getting caught in the crossfire. 
Do they extract tax, like, for instance, uh, at a roadblock or if you want to go into a ministry? That's a great question. Of late, we haven't seen many of these reports, but there was an incident a few years ago in which one of the militia leaders called Haytham Tajuri, a very powerful, influential figure, he had his forces go around Tripoli to the currency exchange shops, getting the owners of the shops to stand outside and putting wheelie bins on top, like rubbish bins on top of these people, and extracting money or insisting that they use the currency exchange that his militia decides they should use in broad daylight. Hisham told us about two separate governments operating in the East and in the West. How did that come about? This goes back to 2014. Essentially, Libya had parliamentary elections and the parliament that was already in existence was based in the capital Tripoli, and it rejected the new parliament elected in the east. And violence broke out. It tried to hold on by force. It ended up with a situation where each side had then formed their own governments, and things shifted around over time. For a while, the parliament in the east was the legitimate one, and its government was there but struggling to operate. Then the UN brokered a unity deal, brought in a government into Tripoli, in 2016, really struggled to assert its power on the ground. The division persisted, and it kind of replicated again in 2021. They brought in a unity government in Tripoli, that's the internationally recognized government, and the Eastern authorities insist that they still have legitimacy and neither side has control of the whole country, and each side has duplication, duplicate armed forces, central banks, you know, ministers, And in the East, do they control the oil trade? The East controls much of the oil infrastructure, oil fields, export terminals. There's a few in the West, but most of them in the East and the South are controlled by the forces of the very powerful Eastern commander, Khalifa Haftar. Hisham told us about the dynamics between the different armed groups and how they're affiliated with different countries outside of Libya, outside of the region even. How does that affect how Libyans can deal with each other, whether they can talk to each other directly or not, whether they can do deals for peace or not with each other? There have been real difficulties in getting the East and the West officials to come together. There are a couple of occasions when that has happened and the UN has brokered talks, especially between military officials. And that was a bit of a breakthrough. For ordinary Libyans, it has been difficult to logistically even sometimes to cross from east to west or west to east. After that devastating flooding in eastern Libya around Derna in September last year, we did see some signs of solidarity between the two governments. And although that was fleeting, we also saw a lot of Libyans on social media say, look, people have been trying to divide us. But ultimately, we are one. And there was this very powerful video of someone holding the insignia and the badges on the sleeves of officials from the East and the West and and putting them together and saying, you know, we are one. We're being divided by outside forces. Was it military insignia? Yes, absolutely. So my next question is, the people of Libya, are they divided between these two governments? Or are they saying, these people are dividing us? We are one country. You'll definitely get different perspectives. There's a lot of solidarity in moments of difficulty where people say we are Libyans, we are one country. But Libya is still recovering from a legacy of 42 years of Gaddafi rule. 
So the concept that they are now divided is also adding to the list of things that they're still grappling with. There hasn't been a closure. There hasn't been a resolution from the authoritarian rule of Muammar Gaddafi. In fact, there are even a lot of very vocal, maybe not a huge majority, but there are some very vocal supporters of the Gaddafi family and his son, Saif al-Islam. Of course, he tried to stand for president, didn't he? He did. And this is an election year in Libya, or at least it should be. And we're waiting to see if he is going to try to stand once more. Libya is a big country. It's a rich country with big problems. What does it look like, the possibilities of peace? Does it look possible at all? It's very difficult because we are looking at forthcoming elections, right? We keep hearing officials talk about preparing for elections, but they're talking in separate arenas. You know, the Western officials say that's what they're doing. The Eastern officials say that's what they're doing. You still don't have that joint approach to organizing elections in the country. And the last time in 2021, there should have been elections and they were derailed over differences relating to the eligibility criteria for presidential candidates. And those issues have not been fully resolved this time around. And the parliament in Eastern Libya kind of unilaterally published the election laws late last year. There's been a lot of obscurity around it. And all of this sets the scene for grievances and issues and complaints to come up when that time eventually comes. Now, there was a very dynamic American envoy that seemed to be trying to get things moving in Libya. Right now, the world is consumed by other wars, other interests. Is it up to Libyans to get on with it and fix things? Or does it actually need that push from the outside? It looks like over time, there has had to be this UN mediation simply for unity governments to be formed, just for those steps to be taken. That was pushed through pretty much by the UN. And you mentioned the US diplomat, Stephanie Williams, very outspoken, as was her predecessor, Hassan Salama, Lebanese diplomat. Both Salama and Williams were really calling out the Libyan leaders for staying in power and obstructing a transition to democracy. Since then, now we have Abdoulaye Batili from Senegal. And he has been, I think, having pretty good success in getting the Libyan factions a bit closer together. But there's a total flip side to foreign interference, which makes the conflict so intractable. We're talking about Russian support for the Eastern-based authorities in the form not only of what used to be Wagner, but actually also the Kremlin. There's Kremlin support for Saif Gaddafi. <laughs> There's Turkish support for Western Libya, Tripoli. And there are a myriad of Middle Eastern countries which have been getting involved and then shifting stances as well. These are all things which have made the conflict very protracted and much more complicated to resolve. Amira Fatala, the Libya expert at BBC Monitoring. To Nigeria now, where the tragic death of a long-time zookeeper has led to questions about both the animals in zoos and the people who look after them. Olabodi Olawi, a veterinary technologist, 
was killed by a lion he'd been looking after for more than 10 years. The tragedy happened at Obafemi Awolowo University in southwestern Nigeria. We should note that such instances are rare, but people working in the sector fear that they will become more common due to neglect and mismanagement by the government. We'll hear a bit more about that in just a moment. But what I didn't know, and I bet you didn't either, Nigeria has lots of zoos, apparently, and many of them are attached to universities. Professor Simeon Idou Kadmus is a veterinary doctor at the University of Ibadan, where it all started back in 1948. It started as um, a menagerie, but functionally it's then metamorphosed into a full zoo in 1974. And the whole essence is that because it's within the university, it's for research, it's for training. So if you want to link that up, you have the different diversity of animals and that gives students and researchers opportunities to look into diversity of all these things. And of course, as things unfolded, then we then had uh, the issue of uh, tourism, people coming for relaxation, recreational stuff, people just wanting to reflect, they go to the zoo and look at those beautiful creatures. Then, of course, uh, with the expansion of universities, with the teaching part, zoology, so that's then... And of course, people started making money from it. Then you also had the expansion of new states and uh, new centers. It created money, it created wealth, it created fun, and it created recreation. That's Professor Simeon Idou Kadmus, a veterinary doctor at the University of Ibadan. Now back to the treatment of animals and the people who care for them. Francis Oyekunle Abioye is the former president of the Nigerian Association of Zoological Gardens and Wildlife Parks, or NAZAP for short. He lays the blame squarely at the door of government corruption and neglect, a stance, he says, that endangered his wife and nearly cost him his life. Do you mind telling us why you're living in the UK now, having fled Nigeria, and why you are now the former head of the organization? Ideally, it's a normal thing to hand over at the expiration of the tenure of a leader. So I finished my first term, and the second time I didn't contest. And why I left was because I was actually being persecuted by government I worked with for over 20 years, just for bluntly refusing and resisting the government from converting the conservation area into their private property of politicians. It became really serious. Your wife was affected by this, right? I was offered all manner of bribe. I rejected. That was what led to my assassination. I narrowly escaped the assassination attempt. And that was why my wife was kidnapped. Is your wife okay now? And have you recovered somewhat from being hounded out of the country? Yeah, she's, she's recovering. A few weeks ago, a young man was killed by a lion that he'd been looking after for more than 10 years. Those images have circulated on social media. It happened in Osun State in the southwest of Nigeria. Tell us about the conditions under which that could have happened. I don't know how much of it you know. This is becoming a recurrent thing. You know, when you hear this happen this year, by the time the new elapses, you will hear another one. And nothing is done by the relevant authority. 
to put the necessary safety protocol in place. And in terms of safeguarding the lives of the keepers and the visitors, what actually happened in this scenario, like you are trying to find out, it was a gross human error, you know. And when you still look at it, are the staff undergoing capacity building? Are they being trained? Is there training and retraining? You know, because a worker that should work in that kind of environment should have adequate knowledge of the animal behavior. I think we should point out that the person who was affected by this had had 10 years of experience, 10 years and more experience of working with this particular animal. So following on this very tragic event, what do you think should be done to improve animal welfare standards within Nigerian zoos and to ensure the protection of people who work with them? What should be put in place? One, the staff are supposed to be trained and the safety protocol should be by induction and should be a regular thing. So you mean people should update the training to remind them of the dangers of what they are actually doing and to be alert and aware? Yes, and then to also learn the evolving technology about the profession. So that's one thing that you think should be implemented. Regular training, refresher courses, updates, and so on. What are the others? The staff are not motivated. Most of the staff facing this hazard are not paid hazard allowance. Somebody who has worked for 20 years is earning less than 70 pounds. Don't be surprised if you hear that the staff in question, including the one wounded by the lion, what the federal government pays such staff who have worked for more than two decades is not up to 70 pounds per month. When the workers is in a dangerous cage and is thinking of how to feed, how to take care of children, how to pay school fees. These are not balancing with the income. Poverty and intellectuality, they can never go together. What would you say are the current conditions of zoos and their workers in Nigeria? Are they relatively well maintained or are they being neglected? All zoos, especially the zoo operated by government in Nigeria, are like torture chamber. Tell me why you think or why you say government zoos in Nigeria are torture chambers first for the animals and then we'll come to the people. Why do you think it's a torture chamber for the animals who are there? Where you have a zookeeper is feeding an animal. As he's feeding the animal, he's almost crying that this food I'm giving to the animal, even myself, I can't even have access to it. That's the level of poverty. That's for the person. I'm wondering... The conditions under which the animals are kept, how are animals treated in the zoos in Nigeria? They they are not treated fine. Nigeria is the worst place for you to be a wild animal. Every developed country is respected by the way they respect animals. In Nigeria, government is not kind to animals. Francis Oyekunle Abioye is the former president of the Nigerian Association of Zoological Gardens and Wildlife Parks. We rarely talk about Algeria. It's one of the biggest and most powerful countries in Africa, fought a bitter war of independence against France, and plays a very active role in continental affairs, unlike other North African countries. In the 1990s, a fierce civil war broke out in Algeria after the army cancelled elections won by an organization called the Islamic Salvation Front, known by the French abbreviation FIS. The organization was banned in 1992. Since then, Algeria has been determined to stamp on any overt signs of religiosity 
So it is with some surprise that we're talking about the opening of the largest mosque in Africa and the third largest outside of Islam's holy cities in Saudi Arabia. And this is all happening in Algiers. So what's behind this project? My colleague Abdelali Ragad is with the BBC's Arabic Services. We began our conversation with the description of the mosque. The mosque is in uh, in Algiers, in the capital of Algeria, and it is a very big mosque. It's not only a mosque, it's a, a kind of institution. So there is a university inside it, there is a mosque, there is a training center for imams, there is a consultancy desks there, so it's a, a big complex there, yeah. So a hub, I believe... It's a hub, yeah. I believe that the, the minaret is the tallest in the world. It's the third biggest mosque in the world as well. Exactly, yeah. The minaret is 265 meters, so it must be the tallest minaret in the world. The mosque is uh, the third biggest mosque in the world uh, after the one in Medina in Saudi Arabia and in Mecca. Uh, and it's displaced Egypt, which had the third lar- it, largest it, mosque as well. It, exactly, yeah. Who built it and why did Algeria want to build a mosque like this? The mosque is uh, built by Chinese companies with Algerian companies as well, and it uh, cost around $1 billion. And it is built in uh, Algiers, in a place where it was previously in the time of the colonization, French colonization, it was a church. It was first a mosque, the French, they turned it to a church until 62, and then they demolished it in the 60s, I think, and now they built the biggest mosque instead. So is there sort of symbolic value to where it is? There is for the Algerian people, maybe there is a kind of, this is the new Algeria. So it's different than the Algeria before 62, where it was more French Algeria, you know. But I mean, it's a long time since 62. Why now? And why did Algeria want to build it? The reason why Algeria built so big, let's say, religious institution, not only a mosque, it's because they say that we went through a uh, civil war 10 years with the line of Islamists, the Salah. Yeah, the uh, feast in the 90s. El feast, yeah. yeah. Um, the Islamic Salvation yeah. Fund, and they're known as feast because of the French Abbrevia- abbreviation yeah. of it. Yeah. And they say that we have seen Algerians coming back from Afghanistan with the very radical version of the Islam. They came back from Saudi Arabia with the same thing. They came back from Egypt, from many countries with uh, that kind of hard and fundamentalist and, let's say, radical Islam. And why Tunisia has Zaytuna, which is a big religious institution, Egypt has Al-Azhar, Morocco has Hassan II Mosque in Casablanca, Saudi Arabia, they have Mecca and Medina, Turkey, they have also their own institutions. We need to have also our own institution where we can preach the Islam and our version tolerant version of the Islam. This is the reason behind they want to build a kind of reference to the Islam that must be taught in Algeria and to combat also the radical Muslims through this kind of institution. It is also the same way if you compare it with France when they say now we don't want imams from outside. We want to form and to train imams inside France to build our version of French Islam. So it's similar to that. Right. And Algerian Muslims are Sunni, right? Algerian Muslims, uh, 98, 99% are Muslims, yeah, uh, are Sunni, yeah. Yeah. And the other version is Shia. So are people coming 
with Shia ideas as well? Or is it Sunni, but just people that have been hardened by the last 20, 30 years of conflict and war in other countries? Yeah, the idea behind it uh, mainly is about the uh, radical Islam that uh, went through Algeria and uh, the civil war. So this is the reason why. And it is built in the time of the former president, Abdelaziz Bouteflika. So he came with that idea to build this big mosque. And it is a kind of tradition because Sisi in Egypt, he did also build a big mosque in Egypt two years ago. They inaugurated Hassan too in Morocco. He has also built the same thing. So it's a kind of tradition in that way, you know. But it's also a response, is it, in order to contain it, the, shall the, we say, threats or challenge threats and challenge that of, a political Islam would pose to countries like... Yeah, and terrorism, yeah. Right. So I believe that it's the opening this weekend was ceremonial because the mosque had been opened for a few years now, but it opened later than it was and it took a quite a long time yeah. for it to be built. What were the issues around it being built? Because the construction this size, there's always problems, there's always yeah. problems. There was corruption. So there was a big discussion and controversy about the building of this mosque and the corruption affairs in Algeria and they stopped working and then they had to hire other companies. And then there is the crisis of coronavirus in the world and then they just postponed the inauguration until 2021 and it wasn't possible in 2020 because of the... There was a hierarchy and the change of the political spectrum in Algeria and the, the demonstrations. Bouteflika was, was deposed. Was that deposed time, right? at that time, yeah. yeah. And they was thinking before that moment to try to inaugurate at that time and it wasn't possible. And now it's the time because Algeria is uh, going through a, a new era, let's say, of investment, of kind of relative stability politically and economically as well. So how have people received this mosque? How have they responded to it? Many people, they are against, let's say, lots of Algerians, they don't like this kind of things. We have poverty. Yeah, people are jobless, you know, there's no, no jobs, let's say, less jobs than before. And they say, yeah, it's not a priority for the Algerians to put $1 billion, otherwise you have to put it for in the hospitals. We have big crisis in the health care and hospitals rather than building mosques. Do we see in Algeria the kind of religiosity that we see growing in other countries around Islam? You know, for instance, women being veiled and being threatened on the streets if they're not, you know, religious police, that kind of thing. Do you see that in, in Algeria or is it more secular? Algeria, you can't see what you can, what you see, for example, in Iran, Saudi Arabia or other countries where girls are attacked because they don't wear, wear hijab, something like that. But there is a lot of radicalization in the society in Algeria. Algeria, before 15 years, for example, most of the girls walk on the street without any hijab and headscarf. And maybe we'll find 10% or 20%. But now it's the opposite. It is 80% all with the hijab and with the headscarf, 20% not. So it is reverse picture of the society. Right. So often that is seen as a sign of the workings of groups that have much more 
I hate to use the word fundamentalist idea of what the religion should be. Yeah. So this mosque, you'd say, is a way of trying to counter that because that could come back as a political force. Do you think it's a good idea? Do you think it'll work? It works if you have a good strategy to make it work, you know. It depends on the, the plans of the government and the, the way they will manage it, you know. So it depends, yeah. Abdelali Ragad, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Abdelali Ragad from the BBC Arabic Services. Focus on Africa was put together by Patricia Whitehorn, Yvette Wagira-Maria, Stefania Okereke and Sunita Nahar. Kani Sharp made sure we all did our bit. Johnny Hall was our technical director. Andre Lombard and Alice Mudengi are our editors. I'm Audrey Brown. We'll talk again next time. For just as long as Hollywood has been Tinseltown, there have been suspicions about what lurks behind the glitz and glamour. And for a while, those suspicions grew into something much bigger and much darker. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I'm Una Chaplin, and from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service, this is Hollywood Exiles. It's about a battle for the political soul of America. And the battlefield was Hollywood. Search for Hollywood Exiles wherever you get your podcasts. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, Ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code TARASAGCLARK. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30-Euro-Shopping-Gutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code TARASAGCLARK.